In 16th century Europe, calls for reforming the church were anything but a novelty. Even calling the Pope the Antichrist wasn't unprecedented. So what turned renegade friar Martin Luther into a religious leader? That's this week on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and this week I'll be discussing the many reformations of 16th century Europe. As a medievalist, of course, I'm especially fond of emphasizing that the idea of reforming the church was not one that no one was smart enough to have until Martin Luther came along. The idea of reform was so common that a pithy Latin tag was made up to go with it. Ecclesia semper reformanda. The church is always in need of reform. The conversations about reform that took place in the later Middle Ages were crucially shaped by the Fourth Lateran Council, which took place in 1215 and demanded a clearer divide between clergy and laity, and that clergy should be both spiritually pure and theologically well-educated in order to properly guide their flocks. Human nature being what it is, this didn't always happen. And so the ecclesiastical hierarchy was, in a sense, rendered vulnerable by the high expectations that they succeeded in creating. The late medieval church, especially, was shaped by calls for reform. The 14th century schism, in which two popes were elected and proceeded to excommunicate each other, had left the church financially strapped and with a crisis of public confidence in its spiritual efficacy. The presence of rival popes explains both phenomena. There were two ecclesiastical governments to fund, each with only about half of Europe's tithes, taxes, donations, and payments for various bureaucratic services. The crisis of having two heads of the church universal really explains itself. With much of the church hierarchy looking less than ideal as spiritual role models, theologians, mystics, and preachers had turned to new emphasis on the importance of the soul's relationship with God. This, of course, had been a favorite theme with mystics since, well, forever, but especially since the 12th century. And with the continuing growth in numbers of relatively prosperous city dwellers who could afford personal devotional books, this emphasis on spiritual development grew ever stronger. So what we're looking at at the time of what became known as the capital R Reformation is not a corrupt and spiritually bankrupt church in need of a great awakening. What we're looking at is a vibrant climate of popular religion coupled with a simmering mistrust of ecclesiastical authority figures who are busy trying to fix their own institutional problems. Even without 2020 hindsight, it's easy to see how this became an explosive combination. Even the documented diversity of popular spirituality was considerable, and probably only a fraction of what was actually out there. The myth that no diversity of belief was tolerated by church officialdom is one of my favorite pet peeves. In order to be condemned as a heretic, you had to have opinions that were unorthodox in the strictest sense of the word, about something really vital to doctrine, like the nature of God. Then you had to go public about it. I mean, if you just had your private doubts, that was fine. That was between you and your confessor. If you were telling all your neighbors that you had doubts about the nature of God or, or sacraments, then that was a problem. But there was a third thing. You had to persist obstinately in your heretical opinions, despite the best efforts of priests and theologians to talk you out of it. In other words, if you believed something iffy about a vital matter of doctrine because you hadn't been taught any better, it wasn't your fault. 
So, how Martin Luther, theology student, friar, and priest got to being declared an obstinate arch-heretic is a long story, which I will tell after going into a few of the political and economic factors which made his teachings and their popularity so alarming to many ecclesiastical and temporal authorities. First, a disclaimer about regional reformations. The changing religious landscape of the late 15th and 16th centuries was not the result of a domino effect spreading out from where Luther stood and defied the assembled authorities at the Diet of Worms, or Worms, as it is funnily called in English. There were such sharp regional differences, in fact, that I'm concentrating today on the Holy Roman Empire, which covered most of Central Europe and especially on the German lands, to use conventional shorthand for 16th century Germany's politically fragmented landscape. Meanwhile, in the rest of Europe, events unfolded in ways shaped largely by political context. In Spain, Catholicism was made a part of national identity by Ferdinand and Isabella, who were trying to consolidate their own political hold on a diverse peninsula. These are the same rulers, of course, who funded a crazy genuine to go look for resources on the other side of the world. In France, there were teeny tiny numbers of Protestants, but due to economic pressure, ambitious dukes, and other typical early modern problems, uh, this led to violent protests and the original Red Wedding, a subject for another podcast. In England, Henry VIII went in a short time from the defender of the faith, who earned his title writing about the sacraments, defending them against Martin Luther, to the subject of the original celebrity divorce case, uh, its own special reformation thing. In Italy, well, most of central Italy was actually owned by the Pope. Also, there are the Alps, cutting it off geographically from all those crazy preachers in the north. So in Italy, the Reformation as it unfolded in the rest of Europe didn't really happen. The Counter-Reformation, or the Catholic Reformation, uh, that happened without splitting deserves another topic, another time. So, what were the political preconditions for the Reformation, please imagine this without capital R, as it unfolded in Germany? First of all, fragmentations. At this point, Germany was a collection of teeny tiny princedoms, where territorial and spiritual lordship were often conflated. And especially in places where this was the case, uprising was anything but a novelty. Protesting against high taxes, unsurprisingly, was especially common. Economic and political vulnerability suffered at the hands of those who were also supposed to be the spiritual fathers of their people led to a. cognitive dissonance and b. apocalyptic fears. Many, in certain territorial pockets, saw order corrupt and crumbling about them, and therefore became convinced that the end was nigh, and that radical spirituality and radical resistance could therefore be justified, could even be a God-given mandate. So this is the religious landscape into which the astonishingly far-reaching protests of Martin Luther came. Now Luther's protests in their full form were distinguished by their theological sophistication, He was quite unusually well-educated, having both the religious training he'd received as a friar and a university education. He also had the sense to publish pithy bullet points in addition to detailed treatises. Crucially, he questioned the authority of the Pope to have the final say in matters of doctrine. 
As a result, the Pope warned Luther that he would be excommunicated unless he recanted 41 of his famous 95 theses. About 50, a little over half, were just fine. 41, uh -uh, heretical. Spoiler, Luther didn't recant. And when condemned as a heretic in one of the most amazingly titled papal bulls of all time, Exurge Domine, Arise, O Lord, it compared Luther in an extended metaphor to a wild boar rampaging in a vineyard, uh, Luther contested it. So, the Diet of Vence, three years after the original publication of his theses, called Luther and all his writings to account. Luther refused to admit that he might have been wrong, thus getting himself classified as a public and obstinate heretic. Feelings ran high at the Diet. Luther had been guaranteed a safe passage, but one of his supporters, Prince Friedrich of Saxony, decided that this was not enough to keep the peace, and staged a fake kidnapping. The prince-elector was nervous not because of ecclesiastical opposition so much as political. That Luther's teachings could be construed as an excuse for revolt against unjust, unchristian rulers made him a dangerous firebrand. So Friedrich smuggled him into a castle, as one does. During his subsequent two years of house arrest at the Wartburg, Luther worked on translating the Bible into German. Now, as things stood, the numbers and prosperity of the literate were not sufficient to make a vernacular Bible instantly accessible, but it did lay the groundwork for creating a community of language. Over the course of subsequent decades and centuries, Luther's German would shape the common vocabulary of those who had hitherto been divided by regional dialects. But I digress. During and after this time, the word of protest and debate continued to be spread through preaching, through pamphlets, multimedia, with both images and easily remembered poems, and through hymns. The phenomena of Reformation were largely urban. Sermons and documents both traveled easily along the well-developed trade routes between prosperous German cities. And long-standing habits of using private devotional books, of receiving all sorts of messages in pamphlet form, contributed to giving these rapidly reproduced assertions of belief authority. Very often, calls for theological reformation could not be uncoupled from political debates about what the acceptable methods of working for change in a community were, about what forms the ideal community should take, and about what models should be used. So Calvin, Hulrich Zwingli, another awesomely named reformer, uh, and Luther all had somewhat different answers to this question of what the ideal city, the new Jerusalem, should look like on earth and exactly what authority having the right beliefs could confer. Now, the political theological discontent came to a head in what came known as the Peasants' Revolt from 1522 to 25, a bloody conflict which Luther first tried to forestall, writing sympathetically to the discontented tenants, saying, have patience, do not revolt against your lords, this is not divinely mandated, pray and have patience. And in Luther's defense, this was not the, the words of an oppressor trying to keep some cushy position he himself had, he just saw that things might end very, very badly, 
as the conflict dragged on, and it was bloody and disastrous for almost everyone involved, uh, he turned against the peasants and called them rampaging hordes and all sorts of nasty things. But when the dust of political and armed conflict had cleared, the question of religious community remained very much up for grabs. Um, Various forms of Protestantism occasioned almost unthinkably far-reaching transformations in popular culture, redefining sacred space, redefining the calendar itself. At the same time, Lutheranism, pejoratively labeled thus by its opponents, you know, merely the followers of this one man and his crazy ideas, lacked at the outside any kind of clear definition. I mean, Luther himself said, look, I'm not a heretic. You can't put me outside the church. I'm just protesting. But the only way that um, Luther's followers had of defining themselves was against the things they didn't like, their rejection of church hierarchy. And many pamphlets of the so-called pamphlet wars can be difficult for historians to interpret because they use, from all sides, very similar terms, debating truth and condemning superstitious practices of the opposite faction. Now, this upset necessitated some sort of agreement being hammered out on the political level, some sort of solution to a a problem of new religious diversity that really was not going away. I mean, diversity of thought was longstanding, but now we are talking formal separation. Priests who say, oh, I'm not Catholic anymore. Uh, Monks and nuns who leave the church. People who just simply say, look, we have our own sacraments now. We don't need you. So something had to be done. Political compromises were facilitated by a long tradition of princes becoming increasingly powerful relative to ecclesiastical authorities. So it was from secular rulers that a solution to the new problem of a two-confession Europe actually came. Power games and conflicts were ongoing and could be violent. Charles V, the young emperor, had long feared losing control over, and the revenues from, the prosperous cities of his empire, many of which had become Protestant. He also feared, however, losing necessary financial support from the kings of France, leur très catholique majesté, their very Catholic majesties, as they were known. And so we come to the most important event in the history of the world, the Council of Augsburg, where prelates and secular rulers and members of the laity all gathered together. Here were laid out the essentials, the distinctive doctrines of Lutheran belief, in a similar way to what the Council of Trent would do for Catholicism some decades later. Furthermore, it laid the groundwork for peaceful and prosperous coexistence between lords and peasants, Catholics and Protestants, more or less on easy terms. The most famous result of Augsburg was the rule of quius regio eius religio. The confession chosen by a ruler would determine the official allegiance of his subjects. As a corollary of this, they established the Auswanderungsrecht, the right of any citizen to move to a neighboring territory without molestation of their persons or property. So if I were a Catholic merchant in newly prosperous Nuremberg, I could get up and leave, technically, without suffering disadvantages. Nevertheless, the consequences of such uprooting could be severe. Many, especially members of splinter groups, 
ended up in colonies in the New World. Others did simply move to new land and new cities. Despite the best efforts of church authorities and pamphleteers, however, people did continue to happily ignore the supposedly hard lines between Catholicism and its discontents. The Utraquists, for instance, were a group who got their name from their belief that the sacrament of the Mass was valid whether celebrated by Catholic or Lutheran priests. Other groups, like the Anabaptists, separated themselves from Catholicism and Lutheranism alike, which usually ended badly for them, doubly marginalized as political and religious dissidents. The religious landscape of Germany, transformed by multiple waves of Reformation, varied not only from region to region, but between cities and their surrounding territories, and Augsburg did not mark an end, either to confusion or to violence. While many Catholics and Protestants, both new identities in a sense, pragmatically set to work coexisting, the alignment of confessional and political allegiance would provide excuses both for local oppression and for bloody European war. But for now, let's leave the princes and their religions where they are, with popular piety finding new outlets and ecclesiastical officialdom reforming as fast as their institutional structures could take them. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about running footmen. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!